Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hey everyone, this is Colleen Wacob and I'm the co-founder and co-CEO of MindBodyGreen. I'll be your host for today's podcast. Alexandra Sachs, MD, is a board-certified psychiatrist who specializes in women's health through pregnancy. She focuses on the transition into motherhood and its effect on a woman's mind and body. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Time, and NPR. Alexandra's new book, What No One Tells You, which delves into the identity shift that mothers-to-be experience, received rave reviews, including this one from the Washington Post. From the outset, the authors break through what they call the bliss myth, the fiction that motherhood is all joy all the time. In the process, what no one tells you makes room for something better, acknowledging the complexity and reality of motherhood. Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you are a reproductive psychiatrist. How did you get involved in this field? Yeah, so reproductive psychiatry is a field that was developed to answer the question, can, essentially, can I stay on my Prozac during pregnancy? It, it, it's a huge question because antidepressants are of the most commonly prescribed medications to women of reproductive age, but the general psychiatry community and OBGYN community didn't have answers for patients who were asking this pretty fundamental question. And so would generally advise people to go off medication because the, I think, spirit being, um, well, it's not FDA approved, number one. And unlike maybe advising someone to stay on their antidepressants or their diabetes medicine, also not studied by the FDA in pregnancy because we don't study any drugs in pregnant women, um, those conditions were seen as um, the medication was essential for wellness, and there was this tradition of not viewing antidepressants that way. And so this was born in the field of reproductive psychiatry. It was a community of psychiatrists um, who were were my teachers, really the generation before me started, were really kind of like, we we have to answer this question. You know, women were dying of postpartum depression. Women were terminating pregnancies. Women were coming in feeling like they had to choose between their mental wellness and uh, having a safe pregnancy and the incredible guilt around that to add to just the regular stigma of depression that we have. So this field was born mostly out of literature out of Europe because the interesting, mostly in the Scandinavian countries, they just have tremendous databases of any medication that's prescribed. So they had actually quite reassuring data for tens and then hundreds of thousands of women who had, in fact, taken antidepressants in pregnancy. And not seem dangerous outcomes in the babies. In fact, literature has shown since then that there actually are some medical contraindications to going 
off of your medication if you really need it because untreated depression and anxiety in pregnancy can be associated with things like preterm labor, low birth weight. So even aside from a woman's quality of life and mental health, um, there are important outcomes for the baby to treat depression. So I entered a field that was born out of this tradition and and worked with women who had uh, coming in with postpartum depression. Some had never been treated for depression, so we were evaluating them for that treatment and questions like Prozac and breastfeeding, right? Mm -hmm. And then other people who were coming in before planning a pregnancy with a history of depression on their medicine. And uh, then then some people already pregnant. (laughs) What should I do? Panic, right? right? So I was immersed in this and the literature, which is really interesting because it's a risk-benefit analysis for every patient, and was studying this at Cornell and then Columbia. And I come into medicine with a background that is kind of like meandered throughout the humanities and journalism, and I'm very interested in culture. And I became interested, I mean, part of why I was gravitating towards this field of reproductive psychiatry was that it was an intersection of feminism and medicine. Yep. And there were amazing women doctors who were teaching me and, and the climate of being in a female-centered medical um, um, educational group was actually really wonderful. Um, just the climate of being a student um, in, in the reproductive psychiatry community and at the conferences. Um, but also just thinking about how how is this experience of pregnancy itself, of the emotional transition, how is this informed by being a woman in our culture? And, and what are we talking about and what are we not talking about outside of the realm of mental illness? Because right. I started seeing, you know, it was really great, this momentum to increase conversation about postpartum depression, hearing it more and more, you know, in influential celebrities coming out and, yeah. and reducing shame, saying, I was treated for this. Very important. Yeah. But I think there, there were also people who were coming out in the public space and, and um, saying things that actually really confused me as a psychiatrist because they were like, I had a really tough time. It was, it was really difficult. It wasn't fun at all. And, you know, some people would describe depression that way. But Depression is a medical condition that has a specific diagnosis. There are specific questions we ask people for the diagnosis to determine what type of treatment. And I think there was this whole group of people in a beautiful effort to try to normalize the ups and downs of new motherhood where the language they had was postpartum depression to describe uh, difficulty, (laughs) to describe ambivalence, to describe guilt, to describe the awkwardness of transition, to describe feeling uncomfortable in your own skin as you go through those tremendous physical and hormonal changes, to describe feeling isolated socially as you are home with the baby and no longer really able to see your friends, Um, to describe feeling different in terms of your sexuality as you may have a baby in your bed and that whole aspect of your life has changed and your connection to your partner. So so many human changes um, when people were coming in to be evaluated for postpartum depression. There was this whole group of people, and I think I was just observing it kind of in the media in these conversations, where where what they were describing was the transition. And um, I wasn't hearing symptoms in some of these conversations of classic clinical depression. And for the women I was working with, who I I think fit into this group, we'd, we'd have like one or two conversations where I would say, you know, what you're going through is is quite natural. It's it's a it's a natural, normal transition that most people go through in new motherhood, and um, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a bad mom. It, it doesn't mean just because you don't like 
the work of motherhood every day doesn't mean that you you won't love your baby. Just because you actually haven't bonded with your baby in the delivery room doesn't mean that you won't love your baby. Right. You know, so so this reassurance was incredibly relieving for people who actually chose not to come back because they didn't need more therapy, they didn't need antidepressants, they felt better from that very brief, what we call psychoeducation, normalizing. And I realized, you know, being someone who was interested in kind of using my um, interest in writing and speaking and communication on a public health level, I realized this was extremely misunderstood in our culture and that rather than kind of having these individual conversations that reassured people I wanted to find a way to teach about this on a larger scale um, and it's been a it's been a really wonderful rewarding um, and, and, and incredibly moving experience to um, pull a term that was coined in 1973 by a medical anthropologist. Um, her name is Dana Raphael, and she's associated also with coming up with the term doula from, yeah. from my research. So she was she was um, quite ahead of her time. And so she is actually the first person in that academic literature to use the word matrescence. And it's a word that I've been using to really capture what this transition is because I think it is a cultural analogy that we understand because it's mapped off the word adolescence. Sure. And we know that adolescence, due to physical, hormonal, and social emotional change, is an incredibly rocky, awkward time. But we also understand that depression is a separate thing that can hit an adolescent, right? But but when a teenager is is feeling moody, is feeling um, like they don't feel um, in control fully and and maybe are struggling with their self-esteem and all sorts of different moments of self-doubt and self-questioning and am I alone? Is this normal? I think a lot of new moms are going through that. And so I think it it it's a beautiful term. It's hard to hard to remember and it, like it's a it's it's it, maybe we can come up with something that's a little bit more user friendly, but I yeah. think um it's it's really been helpful for me because of that analogy to adolescence and to just normalize that this is a profound transition. For, for some people, the most challenging transition of your life yeah. to become a mother, um, physical, emotional, social, all the different ways, it's just a profound role change in our culture, in the way people relate to you, and in a responsibility that after the first, when you're a mom, the responsibility does not go away. It's yeah. a It's a permanent level of responsibility. So the role change is quite sudden and profound. Um, and that's pretty scary. And, and and so people need to talk about it and they need community and they need permission. You know, I think we have a whole cultural trope and I think this is very much related to all of our, all of our histories, what we carry from our past. There's a cultural trope about a, a bad mother, like the evil stepmother, the, the cold rejecting. Yeah. I think that people have images of that in their mind when they um, admit to the negative feelings they're having. And I think part of what I try to do in the normalizing of of this stuff is to just get away from the model of the perfect mom, earth mother, all nurturing, you know, loves to give. It's like I was born to do this versus the bad mother, this evil, going to mess up my kid, going to, you know, we all are connected to the wounds from our childhood. And the last thing we want to do is pass those things on. Right. So I think it's I'm also trying to get away from that binary and just normalize ambivalence for women in general. <laughs> the gray. <laughs> the gray. 
So I love the analogy to adolescence because it is such a huge transformation that's happening to women, you know, at the start of the motherhood journey when they become pregnant. What is hormonally going on with a woman when she becomes pregnant? Yeah, so it's actually different from, for everyone. Sure. I mean, there are fluctuations in estrogen and progesterone um, and in all sorts of different hormones, like stress hormones, like cortisol, your sugar levels, all different things. The, the body, the heart changes, the blood volume changes, the, the body changes a lot during pregnancy. And hormones mediate how chemistry flows through our body. So so there are, there are hormonal levels pretty much on every component. Now, some people in terms of mood are more hormonally sensitive than others. And so we know that just if you look at the menstrual cycle, some people feel very different yeah. at different times of the month, like right before they have their menses is a, is a classic time. Yeah. And there's premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is um, a, a, a condition that we treat. So there are people who are more hormonally sensitive than others. A clue is actually how you feel around your period, maybe how you're going to feel around the hormonal transitions of pregnancy and postpartum, but the, and, and that may be predictive of menopause too. But basically, the, the most important thing to, to understand is that it's not about the level of the hormone. It's not like some people have more estrogen than others. It's about how sensitive you are to the changes, the fluctuation. Right. So some people are just very sensitive to those dramatic transitions, and they're are dramatic transitions, mostly in the postpartum. I mean, there are transitions during pregnancy, um, but they're more gradual in the post in the postpartum. It's a very sudden shift when the placenta, which is which is the main hormone conducting, regulating, when that when that comes out, people have described feeling like falling off a cliff. Wow. <laughs> and um, you know, I think th- that the baby blues which is different from postpartum depression, right. and different from matrescence, is a hormonally mediated condition that over 80% of women experience goes away on its own. We don't think of it as a psychiatric condition, but it, but it is a common thing, which is we've thought of it as a hormonal adjustment, right? That it, most women actually statistically may feel more emotionally sensitive and overwhelmed. Now, you are <laughs> facing your first hours and days of having a newborn, but really we think that the hormonal shift is a big part of this. And, you know, it's hard It's hard to sort out in the literature sleep deprivation and things like that. But those two weeks after delivery is the most dramatic hormonal shift. Um, and, you know, we don't really know exactly how hormones affect the brain in terms of what causes postpartum depression um, that I wish I had an answer about like, well, when your estrogen changes in this way, if you have this gene, we, we, we don't know that yet. But part of that is because science hasn't really invested enough funding in studying women's mental health. Right. Um, so there needs to be more, uh, more research into the female brain and how hormones impact women. Um, and then studies that really try to parse out the psychosocial components that are a part of motherhood too. So I, I love this idea of the gray and delving more into the psycho um, components of it. And something you bring up in your book is that a, many women, when they become pregnant, they do, even if it's a baby they've been trying for for years and they desperately want, they don't feel joy. Yeah. Why is that? I mean, joy is such an interesting emotion, right? Like when I imagine the word joy, I think of ease, of, <laughs> of rightness in the world, yeah. of comfort. I mean, there's... It's not that comfortable to take care of a newborn. It's right. really hard. And so things like being sleep deprived and things like not not having um, peace and quiet to prepare your own meal and eat it, those those are unpleasant experiences. Those are scary experiences. If you like have to go to the bathroom and you don't know if it's okay to leave your baby crying alone, 
it's it's scary. These are moments of taking care of incredibly needy creatures. You know, we it, this is an interesting thing to me in terms of anthropology. As humans, we deliver our babies kind of too soon, right? Right, and um, I think I think the chimpanzee Hence the fourth trimester. Yeah, yeah, and it's probably even longer. Like, I think for a human to be as in- independent as a as a baby chimpanzee, we would need to to carry babies for eighteen months. And like, don't, and don't elephants have a super long gestation period? Yeah, yeah. So, so there are. I I'm not I'm not caught up on my elephant baby <laughs> literature, but I know the baby horses can walk. Wow. Baby ducks can feed themselves. So, you know, it's tremendous amount of work to, to take care of a baby, to keep a baby alive. Mm-hmm. I think that is part of a evolutionary hypervigilance that happens when you're the primary caretaker about fear that's activated in a way that's important, um, that for some people switches on the, str- the switch of, of anxiety that, that can become um, outsized, right, and, and turn into an anxiety disorder. And so much of postpartum depression actually is anxiety. Those, those, those two conditions overlap uh, um, so much so that we've actually, we now use the term PMAD, perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. as an umbrella term when we're talking about these conditions. But, you know, joy describes, I think, things being in equilibrium and in control. And it's just, this is just a more demanding experience to take care of a newborn. And I think change is stressful for people. You know, some people feel joy on their wedding day, but some people feel like uh, disappointed that the flowers didn't turn out, or or anxious or like yeah. cold feet or, you know, d- disappointed that their mom is not giving them the type of attention that they want. Like. Joy maps into all of our expectations and fantasies. Yeah. And so I think when people aren't, quote, feeling joy in new motherhood, I think that, you know, there's a million different things that that could mean, including depression. But I think a lot of the times it means it's not what I thought it would be. Yeah. And I think we have really loaded fantasies about what it will feel like to be a mother. And I think that is charged by so many different things in our culture, but also our own experiences as children, remembering that warmth, wanting to reconnect with that, having fantasies of the warmth we didn't get, having fantasies of repairing that, you know, and 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 intimacy and meaning and all these things that I think people do get from the motherhood experience. Sure. But it, it just like isn't handed to you on a silver platter. Right. <laughs> and I think it comes with a, a lot of ambivalence and hard work. Yeah. Um, so it's just not it's just not easy. And I think that that's why most people don't experience sheer, pure, uncomplicated joy. Though some people who I talk to about their motherhood transition say, best day of my life changed me in this way where I felt I felt like there was the thing that was missing had arrived, things clicked. Like there are people who describe their entry into motherhood that way too. Absolutely. <laughs> and while every trimester in pregnancy has its stressors. I think there's a lot going on in the first trimester that's extremely stressful, whether it's the increased risk of miscarriage, um, there's a lot of testing that goes on. How does someone know if they are just worried about the baby or if it crosses a line where they need to seek help and it's something much deeper? Yeah, I mean, I always say when in doubt, ask your doctor. Because the worst thing that can happen is is someone will tell you, um, will reassure you. Now, reassurance can often 
cross the line to dismissal, right? And we don't spend enough time talking to patients, right? And I think the most important thing for us as physicians and all different practitioners, you know, I think the midwife community is much better at this, um, is to listen to how people are feeling, how they're doing, and 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 take more time with patients. And I think, you know, for us as clinicians, it's obvious. So the things that are obvious to us in terms of anxiety and worry are when those concerns are interfering with your functioning. Yeah. So when you're up at night worrying and not able to sleep, even if you're tired. Right. That's a symptom. That's a clinical symptom of anxiety. That's different from being very nervous the day that you're going in for your amnio because something might be wrong. That's a, that, that is a And there's rash- a large needle going into your body. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a <laughs> rational response to that experience. Yeah. But if you're unable to eat because you're preoccupied with those thoughts, if you're unable to sleep, um, if you just stop enjoying the things that you normally enjoy. Um, People often uh, spend more time at home. They don't want to be around other people. They don't want to do the things that might otherwise um, be fun for them because they really can't get out of their head. So essentially when your mood and worries interfere with your functioning is when we need to talk about and treat a mood and anxiety disorder but you know these things are very very complicated going back to the gray and you know sometimes when people are worried it can turn the corner into an anxiety disorder and so I would love for people to be seen sooner rather than later to be evaluated but we just have a problem in our culture about access to care for affordable talk therapy yeah so you know it's a real issue in terms of it's it's just not so simple to say well like everyone should just have a have a meeting with a therapist i mean I, that would be my dream of but course. but it's just the best self-care out there our culture is far far from that and i think a beginning step is to have more time and more encounters with any doctor, any practitioner. So, you know, whether it's a postpartum doula or this increase of going from the six-week postpartum visit to now it's recommended to go four-week. And I want to go back to something you were talking about in the introduction because I think there's so much confusing advice given out to women who are depressed while they're pregnant. What is the latest research around antidepressants and if someone needs to do something deeper than talk therapy? In terms of safety and pregnancy? Yeah. So for everyone... It's we, so confusing to yeah, navigate. Yeah. Everyone, we do a risk, an individual risk-benefit analysis. So I can't describe for everyone sure. what the risks and benefits are. But we just know that for many people, um, there are real negative health outcomes for untreated depression for both the mom and the baby. So... I think it's more helpful to just frame it that way, that you're not choosing between your health and the baby's health, that for some people, depending on the severity of their their illness, going off of your medications um, actually can can raise your your risk of of um, unhealthy outcomes in your pregnancy. Um, you know, there there are like I guess some general things that may be helpful to reassure people about yeah. is that there are lots of different antidepressants, so I can't make generalizations. But for some of the most common ones, you know, Zoloft is a antidepressant that is commonly prescribed for to pregnant women these days. Um, in terms of people being afraid of birth defects, um, congenital anomalies, the, that risk does, does not change from the general population. We don't see a, an increased risk in birth defects on a larger clinical level. So that's, I think, one of, there are medications where, yeah. where we, do, we there are risks of, of heart defects, of things like that going wrong. For the medications we prescribe um, in, the, in the basic antidepressant class, that, that is not a high risk at all. Right. So I think that's an important thing to just like 
put out there, though I, I can't generalize for every sure. medication. And and, I, and again, I think people are over-prescribed medication sometimes. So, so sometimes it is actually a healthier choice to go off your medicine and lean into therapy um, and lean into figuring out how to support yourself more with meditation, yoga, acupuncture, talk therapy. You know, there's a lot that people are motivated to do during pregnancy that they would treat it as an indulgence at another Huge time. inflection point, yeah. Yeah, and so and so for some people, antidepressants are, are holding that space, and for those people, it actually may be healthier for them to go off their medication during pregnancy. So so I can't generalize, but I think the, the, the big fear out there that if you take this pill, your baby is not going to develop properly, that, that is not clinically true for the most commonly prescribed antidepressants in pregnancy. So moving to the post-birth time period, I definitely want to learn more about what happens hormonally to a woman after giving birth. Uh, I loved what you said about the placenta. It did feel like uh, you're giving birth twice almost. Yeah. <laughs> push out the baby and then you push out the placenta. But what yeah. is happening hormonally there? Yeah, you know, it's just a tremendous shift. And it's it's different for every woman. Um, your estrogen and progesterone levels are, are decreasing. <laughs> so, but you're also losing a ton of fluid. So it's it's a it's just a huge adjustment. I don't have a more specific description than that because uh, I think every woman's body is different in terms yeah. of their hormone levels and and. To do a study where you would be able to screen out the other confounders, things like um, how much sleep the person is getting, are they breastfeeding, which impacts hormone levels, yeah. like w- how big was the baby, what was their insulin level during pregnancy, like yeah. did they have anesthesia from a C-section? I mean, these things are not easy to study yeah. and not top of the list as far as what we need to learn first and foremost for yeah. to improve OB-GYN care. But, um, but yeah, we need to study more about hormones in the female brain. It's and a, what's it's going a on with shift. oxytocin? So oxytocin is a bonding hormone. Um, it's secreted at many different times in the body. It's secreted around skin-to-skin contact around orgasm and sex. It's secreted around skin-to-skin contact with holding a baby and with uh, with hugging, with all, all different yeah. types of like human connection. And it's secreted during bre- breastfeeding. So it's a, it's a hormone that is... Uh, related to that feeling of, of human connection. And um, it does increase also during pregnancy and, and in that immediate postpartum period around labor and delivery. So what are some of the things we can do to support the mental health of new mothers? Mm. I mean, I think decreased social isolation. I think it's very easy to get isolated as a new mom. It's it's hard to travel around the world with a newborn. And we in our, our culture don't have subsidized um, supports like they do in some other countries where there's a postpartum doula that comes and that's part of standard practice. We don't have... The 40 days of confinement. Exactly. Exactly. We don't have mandated paid maternity and paternity leave. So I think at at a larger systemic level, we could um, support moms, make it easier for them to take care of their babies by giving uh, more structural support, government subsidized support for women to take care of themselves and their babies to be able to afford to stay home and take care of their babies or have help. Um, we, we We don't support families around that at all. And in our culture where the movement has been away from intergenerations living in the same village, you know, where there used to be the grandmother coming Huge. in to help. Yeah. It's, it, our culture is in, in urban centers is, is trending away from that. So women and families are, are, are quite isolated when they deliver babies. So I think 
offer interaction, you know? It could be texting your friend, it could be dropping off food, it could be saying, um, do you wanna visit even if it's for five minutes? Mm -hmm. And it could be like, when someone doesn't respond because they're a new mom and they're too busy not taking it personally (laughs) and continuing to offer that, you know? So I think staying connected to each other is, I would say, at the top of the list of what we can do. And that seems to apply whether they have carried the baby or not or whether they have adopted the baby. That's just good good advice to to really help mothers out. Absolutely. I mean, even if they're not experiencing that same roller coaster of emotions from a hormonal standpoint. Yeah, but but a lot of this hormonal literature is actually similar for people who have adopted babies. So we see we see oxytocin levels change from skin to skin to contact. We see that in, with dads that has been studied. So, um, you know, sleep deprivation causes cortisol, stress hormones to shift. So you don't have to deliver the baby to be going through all of those fluctuations in terms of your home, you're up every two hours, you're you're vigilant, right? Because yeah. they're very fragile. Um, and, and, and that changes your hormones and that changes your brain. So there is a specific experience to being physically pregnant and then in physical recovery in the postpartum. But then the experience of taking care of a newborn is its own thing that has certain neurochemistry that's not dependent on delivering a baby. So so yeah, I think it's really about um, trying to fill in the gaps in our culture that are causing women to become so isolated. And I'm trying to do that just on a kind of wider level on social media. I have an Instagram community, which is like motherhood unfiltered. That's the spirit behind it is to just have permission to put things out there that are around um, the difficulties and to hear from other women that they went through that. And then with their second child, it was easier because they learned, you know, to, to, to feel reassured. So there are all different ways to form community, but I think, um, taking a risk in sharing some of the challenging moments that you've had either in your fertility journey or in your pregnancy or in your postpartum or in your relationship you know these things are very private and different right. different people feel reassured by um, creating community around them than others but you know I think we do a lot of pretending in our culture and I think that especially on Instagram yes yes but it's like, Instagram, it used to be this thing where we could talk about Instagram and, and say, oh, if turn off your Instagram and you'll feel better. But I actually feel like Instagram is now becoming a mirror of our culture and, and, in, and in reverse. I think that um, part of why I'm doing... I'm doing this podcast, Motherhood Sessions, is uh, which which is recorded therapeutic conversations that I'm having with with women. Is that people are telling me that it, it's shocking to hear what people are saying and. I am so confused because this is how people talk to me every day. And on your Instagram. I, well, no, in my office. This yeah. is what I do for a living. I talk to people about the, 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 the things they struggle with. And I realize, like, I'm so spoiled as a psychiatrist to have access to these extraordinary stories that people tell me and to have colleagues who, who are sort of have a, a similar ethos. But so many people are, um, I think, raised, and I think it's being reinforced in our culture to... Um, I don't know, communicate different specific emotions than the actual reality of the complexity of what they're going through. And I think, you know, we were talking before we started about authenticity, like 
authenticity is now really confusing to me because there are certain forms of authenticity that are sort of like curated on social media. <laughs> curated authenticity. Yeah, and that's like a new pressure that people have yeah. to be. On, I'm so real. To be, to be, to be real, but in a way that doesn't scare people and is attractive and like. You know, I, I think we're so far from that risk, which really isn't a risk of being honest about yeah. your day, about your moment, yeah. because it's it's making us socially isolated even when we're together. Right. Right. And so I think it's about showing up for other moms, showing up for other women and and telling the truth. Even it's it's like sending that text, offering to drop off food, creating community. But it's also like when you're together, yeah. asking how are you and slow down and try to provide the listening space where you really mean it you really want to know how the other person is and if and if they ask you to to take a risk and maybe tell them because this is how people feel less alone right and probably ideally done in an ideal world not over text message but in a real life conversation sure i mean i i think any anything that that I think people feel we, we spend a lot of time alone emotionally and physically in our culture. And I think anything that can break through that is, is helpful, is healthy, yeah. is mentally healthy for people. Um, so like what whatever bandwidth you have, some people only have, you know, five minutes a day to connect with their friends. So if yeah. it's a text, then but if it's a if it's if you remember, you know, if it's a text about what you talked about last week and you remember and you follow up that that's like that's real empathy and that's powerful and and that um that helps a lot that transforms yeah. mental health so we talked about some of the support systems that we would ideally have when um parents are taking care of newborns how can we support that really hard transition back to work for moms what are some things we can do mm. well the thing that i'm most interested in these days is um normalizing and, and standardizing paternity leave yeah yeah i think that's the biggest thing we could do because it sets up a very complicated dynamic when the woman and, and again i'm using heteronormative stereotypes sure. but let's say it's the woman delivering the baby the woman taking the maternity leave you know i think it sets up a really complicated co-parenting dynamic um, yeah. and i'm very interested in this topic of mental load and emotional labor the invisible work that women do before motherhood in the domestic space and then afterwards where yeah. they become the caretakers in terms of the most like mundane time consuming but also profound in terms of just like the emotional availability sometimes for children i think that is set up a, for a lot of people in the maternity leave right because they're the ones doing the diaper changes for, for more hours you know they're the ones following the sleep schedule they're the ones kind of learning about their baby's temperament because they spend more hours home with the baby yeah and i think for so many fathers who want to step in and be more hands-on with care and take off some of the burden on on their partners and who don't want to be resented and yelled at you know and i i think there's this experience of like partners offering to help but quote, not doing it right. And I think that's because they have had, they haven't had those like 10,000 hours right. to become good at taking care of the child. Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that we need to set up a dynamic in homes where women are not the only people responsible taking care of the child. And I think the best way to do that on a social structural level is to have 
the mom be home with the baby and the dad be home with the baby. And I don't know if it's in shifts. I don't know if it's together. You know, again, we're very far from that because we don't have mandated paid maternity leave in our country. Right. So to argue for paternity leave is a whole other thing. But I think to facilitate going back to work for women, we have to look at why men in the workforce are not also taking care of babies. Right. <laughs> and I for think, sure. And I think this is a huge issue in like companies, for example, you know, when there's the motherhood penalty and all these things that, that they've looked at as far as, you know, professional trajectory and, and sort of being penalized in terms of promotion and earning power that is seen in the data for women after having children at certain age groups in certain corporate structures. But I think that when women are pregnant, and it's such a complicated thing at work because it's visible, right? So your boss knows, like, people make assumptions. They make assumptions that you're going to be less available and that you're going to have to leave earlier and that you're going to be, your mind's going to be on other things. And while all that may be true, because it's hard to take care of a newborn, they should be making those same assumptions about new fathers. Yeah. And, and so I think to support women, we have to stop penalizing women in the workplace too, right? And just kind of equalize the, it's, it's demanding to become a parent. It is distracting in terms of work-life balance, but the load should not only be on women in our culture if we're, if we're trying to take the woman worker seriously in this day and age. Um, and we're living in a world where we tell mothers and fathers, partners of all sorts, that you know we can have it all. We can have the great career. We can be amazing parents. Um, we can be at all the soccer games and do everything we want to do. What challenges does that create? I mean, do you really feel that people think that? I think people are being told that. By whom? Where? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that um, fantasy and like where we're seeing it and who's yeah. saying it and why they're saying it. Oh, it's a real thing. I'm not saying I agree with this in any way, shape, or form, yeah. but as someone who you know recently had her second child, I I definitely see that in a lot of media, um, and I don't think it sets anyone up for realistic uh, expectations. Like a character on a TV show who's like going to the soccer game while she's like on her BlackBerry and running the world. Yeah, and you know we talked a little bit about Instagram, and I was I was prying there because I think it's one of the media that uh, you have to be really thoughtful about because if you you know follow the wrong accounts you can think well you know these people seem to have it all um i tend to practice something along the lines of cal newport's philosophy around digital minimalism so i'm pretty thoughtful about you know the accounts i follow nice but it's a huge trap yeah. like you can uh you know start thinking that you're not doing enough and um I see it on Instagram. Yeah. You know. I think it's I think it's true ev- globally, and I think this relates to what I was talking about before about like our our confusing relationship with authenticity. Because yeah. I don't think you can do it all before having kids. Like people need to sleep. People get in bad moods. People um, make unhealthy food choices. Like we that's called being human. And I think in our culture, this sort of fantasy about the the kind of superhero, this thing about uh, being being so strong, I, I think it's an anti vulnerability model, and I just <laughs> I don't think it's human. Um, and I think because we're emotional creatures, we are day to day is going to be a fluctuation. Like you know, the yoga community says, "See how you feel on the mat today." 
Yeah. You know, see what your body is like today. And, <laughs> and, and that's true for every, every stage of life. And it's certainly true for motherhood in a culture that really has very limited social supports for women and where it's an interesting time where there are cultural messages that women can do everything men can do in the workplace. But there aren't social supports that are equal for women and, re- and men around parenthood. So even yeah. just looking at, you know, if 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 you're told as a as a young woman in college that you could be a CEO if you want to, but when you're approaching your, you know, learning about your biological clock and making these decisions and Oh, I hate that terminology. Yeah. <laughs> it's very like fatalistic. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it's like even not just an example of how we can exactly like oh change gosh. the way in which we talk about That's these things. That's my next frontier. <laughs> I, no, I'm serious. I really want to find new ways to talk about the biological clock. I think... You know, in a way, that's not as doomsday. It's just the, the, it, it's like if we didn't talk we, about if we didn't talk about matrescence, we really don't talk about the biological. <laughs> or, kind of like postpartum depression, we talk about it in a way that's very binary, like doomsday, right? Yeah. Um, and it's and it's super complicated. And I think it's an example of how we're at an uncomfortable point in our culture where in whatever wave of feminism we are a fourth wave fifth wave it's really hard to talk about the differences between men and women in a way that feels safe and politically correct <laughs> but to talk about motherhood in the workplace you know i it's interesting i i spoke at airbnb i i've interfaced with some companies around these conversations about maternity leave and you know, it's interesting, like, there's a real ambivalence, I think, for corporate structures to set up a talk around the transition to motherhood because it's thought of as something that is doesn't relate to the workspace. So I think we're still, like, this is changing, but I think it's still viewed as, like, unserious, not focused on the work if you're talking about your family life. Right. So we need to create more safety to have more of an integrated conversations about work-life balance for the American worker. Um, and I, I I, think the way to do that is to include men in the conversation. Yeah. And I, I think the conversation has to expand so much more beyond, you know, the first three, six months, a year. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I've enjoyed my time with my daughters, but as they grow, it's like, I don't want maternity leave or my time that's allotted with my daughters to be at that point in time where they, you know, need help being fed. Like I find the interactions with them a lot more fulfilling when they're, you know, two and a half. Yeah. And I'm sure that will only grow as they get older. Yeah. But whereas I feel like when you talk about maternity leave or, you know, parenting, it's like very binary, that first, you know, year or two and uh, making sure people have the support system then. Absolutely. One of the things that I think is important to talk about and people find reassuring is attach the attachment literature and caretaking. Yeah. That Um, people have very different relationships with having other people take care of their child, like paid child care, daycare, um, after school programs, nannies. Very emotional topic. Yeah. But the literature has shown that having loving, safe, consistent caretakers who are involved in your child's life only reinforces the bonds with the parents. Yeah. It's it's not a competition. There's not only one attachment slot in the human heart for development. So I think one thing to do to support of course, yes, I would love to foster ways for uh, workers to be able to have a different type of balance so that they can be home more with their two and a half year old and their five year old pick up from school. But I think also to reassure people that their kids are getting what they need when it's not delivered by them. Yeah. And that 
the different parts of who they are, the part of them that, that is at work, that has to be at work, that wants to be at work, is not depriving their child necessarily yeah. of a mother. You'll, you're a mother in their mind when you're not there, if you have a healthy attachment, and then you're a mother in the tactile bonding experience when you are there. But it's bonding and attachment is not about quantity. It's about quality and it's about safety and consistency of love. And when that's provided by grandma and the teacher and the daycare person, the people who truly are safe and consistent and loving with the child, it makes the child feel safe and loved. Yeah. And it, it's like one attachment, positive attachment experience that gets reinforced. So that's been studied from the kibbutz literature in Israel, where there are models that were, were like community raising of children. Right. And so that that those there are interesting studies there about how that did not interfere with attachment with yeah. the mom. That same topic was explored in a recent book I read about and it evaluated um, daycare versus nannies mm -hmm. and no difference in terms of you know, outcome on child. It was the biggest factor was just, was it a loving environment wherever yeah. they were? And safe. Yeah. I mean, you know, the things that we know that kids need structure, um, attention, right? There's like, yeah. they need a lot, but it's, I, I really, it's like, I, I have such different ways of talking to people. I sort of changed change the analogies I use, but without, I guess, I guess one, sometimes the way I talk about it is like, it, it just, it doesn't have to come from you. And I think sometimes that's like, moms don't like hearing that, <laughs> but like your baby can have a great experience being fed by someone else, yeah. you know, who's, who's good at feeding them and who gives them the attention they need. And they're not focused on it on you not being there. Now, that's different in different forms of transitions of separation anxiety and all these things. But I think, you know, it's relieving and it's kind of like humbling a little bit that like, oh, you know, this, my baby's okay without me. But I think, I think it can take. But I do it better, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, it's, 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 there's nothing that is, it replaces the primary attachment, right? Yeah. But it's just that when children feel safe and loved and cared for, they feel good. Yeah. And that's, that's the message. That's a good one. Um, you've said that you haven't met a mom who wasn't motivated to be the best mom they could be, but that every mother only has to be good enough. So can you elaborate on why we should be striving for good enough? Mm, because perfect is not an option. <laughs> We're not perfect as humans. And this goes back to the super mom, the... I imagine this is super hard for high-achieving women to get their heads around. I guess. But it's like, if you haven't learned it before new parenthood, I mean, you haven't been paying attention to your life because your your, your romantic relationship is sure surely not perfect. You know, your your relationship with your body and your body comfort and your body acceptance is surely not perfect. Like we don't get perfection in our human relationships. Now, may maybe like you can set aside a, a, t a time of a mile that you want to be, you know, but like there are things that we can measure that make us feel good. But human relationships, our relationships with ourselves and our relationships with others, there is no option for perfect because it's, a, it's constantly in flux. So no one wants to let down their child right and no one wants to let down their image in their mind of 
being the best mom they can be. And so much of that, I think, is about speaking to your own past and repairing what you didn't get from your mom and repeating what you did. That's yeah, good. good There's a lot of pressure, right? Yeah. Because um, you've never done it before. But I think that just because you have these models and these positive things that you're leaning towards, it doesn't mean that you're going to have the opportunity to, to achieve them with perfection. It's not just that you're human, it's that your baby's human. So even if you have the perfect sleep plan, your baby may not be a good sleeper. <laughs> and that's because your baby isn't a human being. It's like animal. Yeah. It has its own biology. It has its own temperament. It is this is separate from you and it's not controllable. It's a human being. Just like your romantic relationship is not controllable. Yeah. Right? So to strive for perfection is to deny that it's a human relationship and that it's not only that you're human and you can't always do everything you want in full control. It's that you can't control another human being and that healthy relationships are really about the give and take and respect bonding to the cues seeing okay that my baby is this type of sleeper if i try this how do they respond yeah it's like just like in other relationships it's a daily learning process and that's humbling but you don't walk in knowing what's going to work necessarily so a lot of our conversation has focused on new mothers does this push and pull that we've talked about get easier down the road after the postpartum period, after the breastfeeding period, or is, this, or is there always this tension? I mean, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm only two and a half years in. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it changes. Yeah. I think it changes. I think um, the challenges of figuring out how to take care of yourself and take care of other people in your life, especially your children, is going to be a push and pull <laughs> because you, you can't necessarily do both at once yeah um so i think it changes i think it's different for each woman i think listen the physiologic demands of taking care of a newborn get easier babies sleep through the night you're not as sleep deprived babies become more independent you're less worried about their actual like medical stability because you you know at a certain age when you see your child is like knows not to put everything in their mouth it's like okay it's different from when they thought thought so so things like that get easier in terms of your being able to go back to your equilibrium of being someone who can sleep and eat and, yeah. and not be so hypervigilant about safety. But then new challenges arise. And I think it's different for every parent. It's different depending on the kid. It's different depending on what, you know, s- some people do great with babies and, and really struggle with teenagers. It's just... Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I think uh, the emotional complexity that comes with, you know, things like bullying, dealing with a learning disability, like... A lot of big challenges as as kids grow. Yeah, yeah, and I think even just kind of like the experience of the of the of the give and take of the relationship, like children are complicated as they go through their development they express their emotions in different ways so like what it means when your child wants a glass of water before bed like sometimes they're thirsty sometimes they want attention like it's just like it's it's mysterious you're like they're growing they're changing they they don't really know how to describe how they feel and and so it's like it's it i think it's fascinating and like a a beautiful unfolding complexity but it can be stressful um and and i think sometimes people find different stages to be stressful but then it's also happening in the climate around you like some periods of time in parenting are more stressful financially some periods of time there's other health issues going on in the family so it's it's there are different i think some people find it more stressful when they're past the baby phase because some people find i think it's so affirming for their identity new motherhood and 
it's like there's so much time that's demanded to take care of a baby and maybe they didn't feel that sense of meaning and identity for work. A new purpose. Yeah, a new purpose. And so as children mature and separate and individuate and want to spend more time with their friends and, and want to go off on the trip, there is a feeling of loss that can happen, loss of identity for some people in that phase. So it's it's different. It's yeah. different. Uh, what gets you excited when you wake up in the morning? Mm, all sorts of things. But I think this um, this conversation about authenticity is, I think, really at the core of everything I'm doing. Um, being someone who is able to have these beautiful conversations with people about their real lives and to experience that form of human connection and learn about people every day. I find that fascinating. I find it um, incredibly inspiring as an emotional person myself. And it's been such a privilege to have platforms like being on your podcast to be able to inspire people to do the same in their own lives, to yeah. to share their stories, to connect. Um, that is my training yeah. as a mental health professional. It's That's what I've been taught to do. And there is such a tremendous need in our culture right now. And it's um, extremely gratifying to yeah. be a part of trying to bridge that gap. What keeps you up at night? Uh, lots of different things. <laughs> that's a separate podcast on insomnia. <laughs> Bring me back for the insomnia conversation. Um, and what advice would you give to your younger self? Mm. Trust the process. I have that hanging up in my living room. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Yeah, Sachs. Yeah, thank you for having me. 